Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the Classic Mini since 1967. My guest this week is Steve Tarrant. Now, Steve is a larger-than-life character. He's got a big personality, very likeable geezer. Been involved in motorsport most of his life. He tells me he realised early on when he finished last in all four of the kart races that he took part in that competition wasn't for him, but he loves motorsport, so he became a marshal. Sadly, Steve was involved in an infamous incident which took the lives of two other people um, at a motorsport event. But since then, he's become more involved in motorsport. Um, As a marshal, he had to stop doing that in 2017, Uh, but he switched to photography and journalism. Great character, um, a real, true enthusiast. And my guest this week, Steve Tarrant. We were looking for a challenge... Well, try a five-ton motorhome, 28 foot long, driven with hand controls. Right. That means one hand on throttle, one hand doing all the steering. Right. Do you not have a th- Sorry, Steve. Do you not have a... Um, how do you work the throttle? Because I, I would have assumed that there was, like, a thumb wheel throttle, like on a... Please don't take this the wrong way. Like on a sort of sit-on lawnmower or a quad bike. Quad bikes, a lot of quad bikes have a thumb throttle. No, this is a, a dead man system. Right. This is a push-pull lever. Ah. Um, like a train. You pull it towards you to accelerate. You push it away to brake. Oh, right. Um, okay. It's a dead man system so that if I was to collapse at the wheel, I would fall forward, the brakes would automatically be engaged. Yeah, like a city tram or, or I think some trains are like that, but but not yeah. all not all trains. I've, I've driven yeah, a train. Idea. Have you ever driven one? What, a train? Yeah. No, it's the one-wheeled vehicle I probably haven't driven. Ah, you say that. You say that, Steve. <laughs> you, do you realise, this is going to sound terrible, people, people. Well, I was going to say people who don't like me already. I suppose people who don't like me already wouldn't be listening to this radio show, would they? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, so, people who don't like me already will uh, hate me when I tell them that I hold the world record for using the most means of transport. Okay. 101 in five days. That's <laughs> quite a number. I did 10 in one day. Well, it was... It was I'll ask you what the 10 were in a second. Um, I've told this story before. I'll tell it quickly. Steve Davis, not that one, although I have met Steve, da- Steve Interesting Davis, a.k.a. The boring one? I think you'll find the nugget is far from boring. I went to see an, an evening with Steve Davis at uh, a beautiful Victorian theatre in Bakeup in Lancashire, which was like... I mean, I went there in a Citroen, but it was I might as well have gone there in a time machine. It was like going back in time. But it was... Because uh, it's up in Thills, 
is back up, as they call it up there. One of those places that BBC never seemed to be able to... Like Todd Morden, <laughs> which is on the Lancashire Yorkshire border. Anyway, Steve Davis um, is one of the most interesting people you've ever, you'd ever meet, as well as being the, you know, one of the greatest players in the history of the game of snooker, when snooker was a big deal. It's funny that, isn't it, Steve? Do you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, I used to watch it um, on the black and white TV late into the evening when I was uh, working behind the bars in the 70s and early 80s. So, hold on. Pop, pop Black... Were you, were you a fan? Not so much Pop Black, but the World Championships and the British Championships that uh, BBC used to cover a lot. Well, my grandfather, my mother's father, who was a big petrolite, although if you'd have said that to him, he would have probably given you a cuff around the ear roll. A Jaguar man, a Riley man, uh, Rudge motorcycles, uh, Triumph Vitesse convertible. He always wouldn't have anything that wasn't British. A Victorian man, like my dad's father, both born the same year, 1900. The last year, wasn't it, of Queen Victoria's reign? Mm. And by the way, BBC, it's not Her Royal Highness. That's the other members of the royal family. It's Her Majesty. And you don't even... All of a sudden, they've started adding Elizabeth. The Queen Elizabeth. Which Elizabeth? Elizabeth the first or Elizabeth? If you're going to erroneously add Elizabeth all of a sudden, the last mm. resting place of Queen Elizabeth, which one? There have been two. Yeah. Honestly. I did a presentation with a member of the royal family once. Well, twice, actually. And both times they were there lecturing me on sort of etiquette. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that I know more about this sort of thing than you. Just because I'm from the north doesn't mean that I know that you say, uh, your royal highness, and then ma'am, or your grace, or sir, or, you know, and you don't touch them and you let them speak and wait till they stop speaking. Although, to be honest, if I'm absolutely honest, Steve, I think I'm a bit of a Republican. A little bit. You know, I enjoy the pomp and pageantry and all that sort of thing as much as anybody else, but it's 2022, isn't it? (laughs) I can't remember which which tangent I'd gone off on. Oh, it was asking you about your motorhome. Yeah, um, basically went up to um, Edinburgh for the military tattoo. Oh, right, yeah. A link to something I used to do 40 years ago. I was involved in youth marching bands in my teens and 20s. Well, can I ask you about that? Do they still do? Here's the question that I bet everybody asks you. Do they still do, which is a great favourite of me and my father on the television, and I've just remembered what I was talking about, Pop Black and my granddad. Come back to that in a mm-hmm. second. The field gun competition. Do they still do that? Uh, the Royal Tournament stopped. 80s, 90s? Yeah, but did they not switch the field gun competition to... Just because that stopped, did they not switch it to something else? No, uh, the Royal Tournament that was in um, London, that basically was a show that stopped um, decades ago now. And even the Tattoo at Edinburgh is uh, basically a musical festival rather than a military uh, exercise. Oh, right. Well, that seems a shit. (laughs) I used to like that. I come from a, a background involved with marching bands, so therefore for me to see bands from uh, Mexico and Switzerland and New Zealand and such like, um, you know, it's interesting to see the cultural differences. Well, for me, um, when I was with Rupert, this is a mutual friend of ours, everybody else, by the way, and how does it happen that a lad from Bury Lancashire like me ends up knowing four different Ruperts. I have to go, because I go, uh, I was talking to Rupert, and people go, which one? You, don't you know four Ruperts? 
Oh, there's only one of them that's truly posh. That's the that's the because of course, the British perception of posh is utterly different to anyone from abroad's perception of posh. Although my missus, who's a considerably further up the social ladder than I am, has got a very highly attuned. Even though she's not actually British and wouldn't claim to be, she knows a proper posh person when she meets one. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. We went to stay at a pal's castle up on the borders, and he'd forgotten that we were going because he does stuff like that. And uh, obviously, we don't hold it against him. We turned up, and the faithful retainers came out with literally with lanterns, literally with lanterns, not torches, lanterns. <laughs> you know, like I always thought lanterns. I was looking for a shotgun, seriously looking for a shotgun. I thought one of these people got a shotgun. No sort of Sounds moves. Like the Scottish version of Downton Abbey. Because we just rolled up. No, it wasn't. It was borders. It was our side. Sorry, I should have qualified that, Steve. Our side. Our side. That sounds terrible. I'm one of the. I'm one of the most committed unionists you could hope to meet. And when I say that, I don't mean in a sectarian way. I mean I greatly value, greatly value the contribution of the other parts of the United Kingdom to the United Kingdom. Even though I'm obviously a Lancastrian born and bred. But anyway, yeah, I know a few like that as well. The Redmonds, for example. Yeah, I love I, when I'm in Scotland. I feel at home. I feel like and Wales and you know all parts. Although and here's here's how I people at home are thinking. Oh yeah, Barry. Um, my mother's side from County Wicklow, in the Emerald Isle. So you know we've we've got the whole of the British Isles thing going on in our family. But anyway, when Rupert and I went on our recce for our bike trip on our small bikes round Scotland trip. We thought we'd better go and work out how far it would be feasible to ride in a day. And when we got there, would there be a shop? Would there be a supermarket? Would there be a hotel? Would there be a pub? And people are saying, how ridiculous. What? Well, I'm telling you, do you know what we found, Steve? As, as you know, when you went to your motorhome, a lot of places we got to at the back end of October in Scotland... They had signs that said, we're closed, see you in the spring. Honestly, everywhere we went, in the right in the northwest tip of Scotland, Cape Wrath, round, round that part, up there, there were just signs, back in the spring, enjoy winter, exclamation mark. So when we arrived in Inverness, it was on Armistice Day, and we literally arrived in the centre of Inverness, which is a great city, mm-hmm. and the bands were marching, and it was absolutely... I would. It was worth going all the way up there just for that. We literally arrived, and we heard them coming in the distance. And I thought, this is going to be awesome. And it it wasn't just our pipe band. It was numerous pipe bands from all over the Highlands. I should imagine had gathered in Inverness for Armistice Day, uh, and it was just. If you're British, if you're Scottish, it probably means something entirely different to them. But if you're British, um, it's still significant. And I just thought the sound of the pipes it must have been terrifying on the battlefield if you were a frenchman or a dutchman or a spaniard or well we fought everyone didn't we <laughs> at some yeah, point that's pretty much the case. at some point the sound of them pipes coming towards you must have been absolutely blood chilling mustn't it because you thought if you've never heard one before definitely they're coming and they're not and them highlanders were you know we were talking about queen victoria she greatly valued the highlanders didn't she Absolutely, which is why they're still part of the Queen's Guard. Absolutely. 
We've kind of got off the mortuary subject, but I don't care because this is the sort of stuff that middle-aged... I was going to say middle-aged men. Somebody accused me of being old the other day, Steve. What do you reckon? 58. Is 58 middle-aged or old? Um, I'm still thinking middle-aged. So even yeah. though I've sat in the wheelchair for all this time, well, the last 22 years, um, I still feel young enough and in my mind and such like, even his body can't keep up. Because we're going up to, uh, I believe, John O'Groats. I don't know why we're going to John O'Groats. There's nothing there apart from a sign that tells you how far it is to Land's End. I've been there umpteen times. No, I only got as far as Fort William and Ben Nevis. So uh, well, I've got a lot more to explore the next time I go up. They're the good bits. Although, um, the reason we went to Cape Wrath and we're going to go to Cape Wrath on the bikes is because my partner's father, who's a Glaswegian man, who's resided in Africa and then Canada for much of his life. As a lad, he went there on his rudge, on his rudge motorcycle. Or he, Ooh, here's the thing. Proper bike. He tried to get there. And he said, oh, Steve, when you were, he casually mentioned it in the way that <laughs> Scotsman will to an Englishman. Oh, Steve, you might want to have a try at getting over to Kate Rath. So I thought, I'm definitely doing that. He's saying, you know, he said, I tried to get there, but there was, there was no service at that time of year. And so me and Rupert, it seems weird talking about him with him not being here. We should get him back on the show, but you know what he's like. He'll go off, he'll go off on some extremely long anecdote, which which conversation, which doesn't, which doesn't have a proper ending. It's always interesting with Rupert. It's always the journey, never the destination, isn't it? Because he'll start telling you about something that he did on some rally. Because obviously, the guy we're talking about is a big motorcycle guy, classic rally guy. At the moment, he's off on the Cento Ore in Italy, which, in my basic Italian, is the Golden Hundred. Yeah, the Cento Ore. Right, somewhere. Yeah, uh, he's off on that. But um, anyway, getting back to your getting back to your motorhome. Yeah, so, uh, Hold on, I want to ask. I want to ask you, right? Because yeah. a pal of mine has just moved up, having lectured the rest of us. He had a VW California. Now I'm sure you'll be familiar with that. I've driven umpteen generations of them, I've which is seen them. yeah, it's the Volkswagen van-sized camper, very popular, very expensive, very mm-hmm. well equipped, and for years and years he's gone. You don't want anything bigger than this. You don't need anything bigger than this. Anything bigger than this is a waste of of petrol or diesel or whatever. Anything bigger than this is hard to park. It won't fit down country lanes. Do you know what he's just done? He's got got one twice the size. Yeah. And he said, to be honest, with two of us in the California, there just wasn't enough living space. Which is why they always had the pop-up tops and... um clip-on sides and things like that, because in the van itself, it's not big enough. Do you know, at one point, I love this fact, at one point, the third largest motor manufacturer in the UK was Dormobile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not surprised. In, in, when the British motor industry, I was going to say, was on its knees, on its knees of the exaggerated the state of health of the British motor industry at that time. MTs was when it was on its knees. Yeah. Dormobile... With the, the people who converted, mainly Bedford's, wasn't it? Bedford vans into campers. But they did everything. And I, I did a, I went down there to do, hold on, first mention of Top Gear, 15 minutes, 30 seconds. Not bad. Not bad. Quarter of the way into the show, first mention of Top Gear. I usually get there much earlier, if you'll pardon the expression. Anyway, I went down there to do an item with them, and I met the bloke who'd run Dormobile. And he was... 
Um, very interesting guy. He was, he'd sort of been headhunted to try and breathe some fresh life into the company. And so what he'd done is he'd, he'd approached virtually every... This is how... The, you wonder how the industry works. And sometimes when you go to a much smaller company, you can see the workings a lot easier. You know, you can't go to Ford or Toyota. You can't go to any of those huge companies and see the way the com- companies run. But if you went to TVR or if you went to Dormobile or if you went to, you know, Pagani... I went to Pagani. I went to Pagani and it... They, when we arrived at the factory, I said to the bloke who was with us, I said, is this it? And he said, I think so, this is the address. I said, it looks like somewhere where they make up and over garage doors. It was just a scruffy little building in an industrial estate. I don't know what I was expecting. I, I think I was expecting sort of sleek marble and glass and designer this. and It was just a factory. But anyway, the bloke from Dormobile, um, he'd gone out to try and keep the company going, and approached virtually every manufacturer and said, give us a van and we'll turn it into a dormobile. And they'd gone, oh, okay, in for a penny. So they got one of everything. They got a Mazda van, a Toyota, they got everything. And so they created these one-offs, which they never actually put into production. But, of course, if you meet anybody that's into dormobiles, they've normally got, like, a Bedford CF1 or a Transit, Ford Transit one. And I say, uh is this it then? And they go, oh no, I'd, lo- I'd love to have the, I'd love to have the Mazda, there's like one, or I'd love to have the Nissan, there's one, you know what I mean? And you sort of, you think, ah, right, yeah, so this is how rarities and oddities and stuff like that gets created. It's just people trying to work out how to turn a profit. Well, everybody's got their idea of what is the ideal vehicle. And uh, even today, um, with all the manufacturers, They've all got different ideas of how to do the same thing. And then if you get a unique set of situations like my own personal one, where I'm using a wheelchair to go up and down the vehicle, right. then it brings a whole new host of um, challenges. Right. So can you do the setup when you get to where you're going, Steve? Is that is that why? Because I was going to ask you the, the question, which um, many people must ask, why not a caravan? And then... Obviously, if you're able-bodied, I would imagine it's a lot easier to have a caravan than... Whereas if you're in a motor home, you just pull up and there's none of that lifting it off the tow bar or jacking it off the tow bar or whatever. Although I would imagine these days, even people like yourself who have issues with mobility, um, that can all be solved by modern technology, I would imagine, right. with motors and all sorts of stuff that can detach the tow bar and power it I up. I will describe and... how I go to Le Mans. Right. I basically take go solo. I take, I mean, I'll say my motorhome's 28 foot. I got a lift that lifts me off the ground into the vehicle. From there, I then roll to the driver's seat and move on to the driver's seat and then drive with hand controls. But I'm also towing a 15 foot trailer, box trailer, which also has my mobility scooter. Right. Therefore, I'm in length, something around about 45 foot in length by the time I've hitched up the trailer. Now, what you can buy for caravans, and I then adapted it to put on my trailer, is a remote control. And you can drive your trailer to the towing hitch on the back of your um, motorhome. Right. I haven't got one of those on my 19... Manually is the actual hitching of uh, putting the ball over and um, locking it. I ain't got one of those on my 1968 Airstream. <laughs> a remote control that drives... Right, OK. So, hold on. So when you go to Le Mans with something like that, do you go in... Is it more effective to go through the tunnel than go on a ferry? 
Because with something that long, presumably the cost of going on the ferry is prohibitive. I've done both. Right. Which um, is best in a... So, so folk know, if you're in something... If you're like you, 45 feet long with a trailer on the back of your motor, and what, which is the best way of doing it? Well, the thing is, I'm Dorset, so therefore, in the, previously I used to use Paul, because literally that was no more than 10 miles away from where I was living. Right. To get to the tunnel is, uh, was about a 100-mile drive, then go across, and then obviously add an extra 80, 90 miles to the journey, getting back down to Le Mans. So you were effectively like driving away from Le Mans to then come back. Yeah. So how many times have you been? Do you know? Have you? Have... Uh, I've done twenty t- trips in total. Right. Uh, back in the eighties, I did three trips as a spectator. Then I did fourteen trips as a marshal, and I've done two trips as a journalist, and I'm hoping to make it a third time next year. Right. Yeah. And which which was the best year for you? Were you there in the sort of silk cut Jaguar years and the the Bentley comeback years, or or which was which was the best year for you? Right. Well, the the early visits I did eighty three, eighty four, eighty five. That was the start of Group C. So it was Porsche versus Porsche, whether just wearing different clothes. Yeah. So it was either Rothmans or Newman or Blaupunkt or whichever. And that was, that was, uh, what was it like then? Was it, I mean, I went, I've only been once. I went three years ago and it seemed very slick and very corporate. And a lot of what was going on was um, biased towards that kind of corporate entertainment type package. There is, but there's still enough there that the general spectator can appreciate get in there and do whatever they want to do on their side. But if you want to go back to the 80s, um, I would say rustic is probably the best way of describing it. Um, Let's just say the fence lines were the urinals. Um, There were basically gravel paths everywhere, so you got um, hot and sweaty from the heat, and then you got dusty and um, dirty, and uh, it was somewhat rough and ready by comparison. But then motorsports has um, changed a lot in that time as well. Well, yeah, of course it has. But um, what made you want to go to Le Mans? Was it reading books or... Because or, I was saying, or watching it on TV. You couldn't watch it on TV. I don't remember Le Mans ever being on the television when I was a kid. I read a book called Speed Six um, mm-hmm. out of Berry Library when I was about eight or nine years old. And I don't know if you know it. It's just been reprinted as well, I think, Speed Six. And it's a novel. It's not a. It's not a historical um, record, uh, but it's about Bentley and the glory days of Bentley, and you know the nineteen twenties, the Bentley boys, Wolf Bonato, uh, Dudley Benjafield, Tiger Tim Birkin, all them, all them great guys. And they, you know, it's what we were talking about. They sort of epitomise the best of British in many ways, don't they? You know, W. O. Bentley, war hero, not necessarily for sort of you know getting shot at and shooting at other people, but. His engine for the for many things, including the Sotwith Camel. I always remember that film, The Blue Max. Do you remember that? George right. Peppard, Hannibal at the Air Team. Do you remember yeah. it? But uh, you know, I read a, a similar book. It might have even been the same book, same sort of age, eight, nine at school. And I remember there being this um, big crash at White House and uh, right. Maison Blanc, as it actually is, all involving the Bentleys, and then this one um, managed to win and such like. So. 
Yeah, I suppose that kind of started the imagination on the road to motorsport. And it wasn't for another 14, 15 years that um, I was then able to actually go on my own. So where did you start? What you said to me, Dorset, were you brought, brought up down there? I can't think of, I'm trying to think Castle Coombe, I'm trying to think the nearest circuit to Dorset. Right, well, yeah, basically I was born bred outside of um, Bournemouth on the coast. And down our way, Dorset's race circuit is basically the clay pigeon um, cart circuit. Right. Or the Ringwood Raceway stock car circuit. Right. And Speedway, of course, there as well. Bournemouth, Pool yeah. Pirates, definitely. Pool, pi- Pool Pirates, yeah. So, therefore, my early motorsports was principally Speedway, because my parents were both uh, pretty fanatical about that. Um, they started in their courting days and carried on for another... 15, 20 years before um, I came along and uh, then when my brother came along, I suppose um, sitting on concrete steps and such like as you did back then um, <laughs> kind of got a little bit more painful on the posterior maybe. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to ask you a question now, but I'm, I'm, there's a bit of a clue in the question. I'm going to guess that although they went and watched Speedway, your parents weren't motorcyclists. Um, well, my dad was. Ah, there you um, go. He's um, gone through various step-through mopeds and early motorcycles up to, I think it was a Bantam was the last one he actually had. Well, um, and then he, I think he put a cycle on it when obviously um, he was causing with mum. Um, but by the time obviously I came along, um, it was decided that something with a roof was required. A double adult Busma. Do you, not, yeah, do, you not remember, do you not remember? Oh, an Isetta. I was going to say, do you not remember them? The double adult Busmar sidecar. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that's what... You never used to see them on film or, or, or television because, of course, it completely enclosed the passengers. So mm-hmm. whenever they put a sidecar on TV when we were growing up on British telly, it was for comedic effects, wasn't it? They'd be like Dick Emery or Dave Allen or Harry Worth or On the Buses or whatever it was. There'd be a motorbike and sidecar. And even as a kid, you'd be watching it and you'd be thinking, something's going to happen to that sidecar. <laughs> and it always it always yeah. did, didn't it? It'd become detached from the motorcycle. They'd go off in different directions. I don't know why people writing film with television always thought, right, and then what'll happen? And you're, you're thinking, yeah, go on. Go on, surprise me. And then the sidecar breaks off. Yeah. Oh, what a surprise. That's never happened before on telly. Every yeah, single time you saw one. And the, um, the wheels and frame and such like are all sitting there, you know, at the traffic lights or whatever. Well, yeah. so, here's, so here's the thing about the about the bus. It might come back to your 45-foot-long rig that you go down into till the morning. When that was on the side of a motorbike, there was absolutely no way that the motorcycle rider could see over it or past it. or You just had a massive, massive blind spot. And there used to be a fella that used... To, again, what happened to people like that? There's terrible nostalgia, but sod it, I don't care. I like nostalgia, it's good. <laughs> I like the past, it was great. Apart from all the people dying of lung cancer from smoking and... Horrific drunk driving and people refusing to wear seatbelts because they thought they were for pufters, which is bizarre. But anyway, there was lots of good stuff. There was a fella that went through every motorbike event. You'd t- you'd turn up, and he'd turn up on this motorbike, and he he had his business in a box. When I say his business, what I mean is his profession, his trade. 
And what he'd do is, you'd give him your leather jacket, and he'd sew, like, wings with Honda, or he'd, he'd sew a sticker that said, sod off, or I'm with stupid, or whatever, onto your... He sold the badges, and he would sew them on, and he had... He had a sewing machine, which was powered off the motorbike <laughs> in the back of this thing. But this box was so big. I mean, it was like three times the size of the motorcycle. There was no way he could see where he was going, really. No way at all. Just this giant box. That guy did hundreds of thousands of miles all over the country for years and years and years traveling. So well, you turn up and you go, oh, there's the patch guy. Because you, you couldn't miss it. This relatively modest motorcycle, I think it was an MZ, an MZ250 or 350. Oh, that's a name from the past. Yeah. And on the side, this giant box that had all this stuff in and I thought, how does somebody safely navigate the British Isles on such a deathly contraption? But he had done. He'd done it. And then all of a sudden he was gone and they said, oh, he got too old and they, they carted him off to an old people's home or something like that, which I suppose happens to all of us in the end. It will do. It will well, do. people are in denial, aren't they, mate? It's like... Somebody said to me the other, like, I mentioned our bike trip the other day, but I think it's I think it's relevant because, you know, the average age of the guys on this trip is probably 60, maybe a little older. And a few people have said to me, oh, are you sure you're going to be all right? And I'm like, yeah, we'll be fine. Don't worry. Because we, we are, it, this sounds horribly boastful and stuff like It's not meant to be. We are active men. We're not sitting on our giant arses on the sofa watching the telly and waiting for death. No, sir. We refuse to do that. We're no. going to carry on riding motorbikes, going to motor racing, going on road trips, doing all the things that we love to do until we physically cannot do it anymore. And you're a great example of that, Steve, if you don't mind me saying so. Somebody who, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about what happened and all that sort of stuff, or whether you're sick of talking about it or you find it upsetting or whatever, but since the accident that you were involved with, you've probably had more to do with motorsport than before, haven't you? Well, there's a saying that as one avenue closes, another one opens, and um, yes, you could definitely say it unlocked some doors to all sorts of different places that I might not have considered life going in that direction previously. Um it's one of those things that uh, it happens in life. Uh, I've certainly lived the last 22 years to live with it. And um, to try and, I was going to say, promote it, the positive side of it. Yeah. It happened. Life didn't end at that point, And it's how you move forward is more important. Yeah. Well, do you want to quickly tell people what did happen rather than me getting it wrong? And I mean, I know, but obviously, you know, you can. Do you want to quickly tell people what happened in your own words, Steve? Yeah, in one line, I was hit by a Formula 1 car doing 140 mile an hour while holding a checkered flag. Yeah. Right place, wrong time. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of people would think that the implications of that, which are most obvious in that you, you lost a leg in the accident, it's way more involved than that, isn't it, Matt? Uh, yeah, obviously it was a total change of lifestyle, but I'm still the lucky one because obviously the driver... And also the fire marshal who was alongside me succumbed that day. And um, it's one of those things that accidents happen in life. Um, in some ways, I'm glad it happened there because obviously we had all the medical facilities on site. You had all the doctors. They were literally there in seconds to help with us. And, you know, if it happened outside my own front door, hit by a bus, mm. what's the point or purpose in that? So... Yeah. 
one of those things. Did you think you'd go back to motorsport, or did you wonder whether you'd want to after I, after this, what had happened? This is true story. Um, basically, I was well. The newspapers say airlifted to Chichester the Hospital. I was actually blue lighted on Blues and Toots because it was only two miles away, and. Apparently, I was conscious enough to sign my own first um, operation form, although I have no recollection of that. The amnesia um, taking that direct memory. But basically, from that point on, I was in intensive care on life support for the next five or six days. Um, and I'm on morphine, I'm on this, and I'm on that, drips and everything you can imagine that's um, keeping me alive. Um, it was on the Wednesday after the accident that I finally came round. And but basically, the first questions were, do you know where you are, and do you know what happened? And I said no, no to both. And they proceeded to tell me about the accident, and they told me about the leg. And apparently, my reply to that statement was, they have not seen the last of me. Now, where that came from was an inner thing. Um, it's not something I consciously decided, but I obviously said that, and I basically, for the last 22 years, lived up to that. What were your, what were your feelings when you went, God, I sound like I'm on daytime television, what were your feelings? Let me rephrase that question without sounding like I'm one of those idiots on daytime television. What was it like going back to the first race meeting that you went to after, Steve? Right. Well, that was actually a whole 12 weeks later. Um, the Duke of Richmond, Lord Marshall, as he was back then, invited me to come out weekend out from hospital, um, like a um, convalescent weekend, and to go to Goodwood for the revival. And I was brought down by... Um, a very soft suspension vehicle because um, my left leg was still pretty badly broken and in a frame and such like. And it was also when we had the uh, fuel um, strike at that time. So um, we, you know, trying to get petrol to get down to from London down to uh, Chichester was not easy. Anyway, um, met lots of drivers and was talking to people like Derek Bell and Joachim Mass and. Um, who'd actually been at Goodwood, obviously, in the summer, so therefore they knew what I'd been through and were very pleased to see me there and such. And on the Sunday, I was put in an area right alongside the track. And basically, it was a test of my nerve. Did I still enjoy what I was seeing and did I want to still be back as part of it? And as far as I was concerned, I was smiling all day long. So the, that match pretty much um, was the answer. Wow. What about the learning process that goes on after something like that? I This is not the place... Well, it is the place for me to talk about uh, something that happened to me, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, but what happened afterwards, and I think it's one thing that we do very well here in the UK, is we look at what happened and we all try and learn from it going forward. Was that what happened with you, Steve? Pretty much. I managed to get hold of a copy of the actual video of the accident and I played it time after time after time, just analysing what the car did, where it was, how it reacted, so I could just um, compartmentalise it in my own mind 
that it was an accident, it wasn't deliberate, wasn't intentional, it was just one of those things. And then when you think that it's an accident, um, it's easy to put that back and say, okay, it happened, what do I now need to do? Yeah. Um, what about work life, career, all that sort of stuff? How did that a big a big change there, or was it? Were you involved professionally in something where you sat at a desk and so it didn't make that much difference, or or was it a big change for you professionally? Um, both. Um, the job I did was IT support Monday to Friday. Um, and at that time, I well, pre, pre the accident, I would actually go around to people's desks. I would um, work on their computers. We had underfloor cabling, and I would be all sorts of patching, and then going here, there, and you know, all around the building. We had say about sixteen hundred PCs in the building, so uh, there was a lot. There was always a lot of work, so we had our own IT division. Obviously, mobility was very much uh, reduced after that. So, um, even with a prosthetic, I could walk no more than 50 to 100 yards at best. So, therefore, the job did change to being a desk-bound job. And because, I suppose, it was the uh, post-traumatic stress side of things coming through, um, being left on my own, I was finding it difficult to cope with. So, I effectively got downgraded in job, although I wasn't downgraded in person. But there were people who didn't respond to it the right way. So uh, you kind of felt very negative about the whole situation at times. So was this something that spurred you to think, um, maybe I could work in motorsport in some way or with motorsport or around racing um, full time? Or, or was that a long time coming? Um, well, unfortunately, there's never been a um, employed salaried type role. Everything I've ever done has been off my own back. And Dorset, unfortunately, again, is not a hotbed for motorsport. <laughs> so, therefore, uh, unless I was prepared to move from Dorset to somewhere else, um, and that's then mean I'm leaving family behind and having to restart everything on my own. Um, it just wasn't going to do. Right. But now, if I look on your social media, as I always do when I'm going to get somebody on, um, I see you with all kinds of very famous people doing all sorts of motorsport-related stuff. So... Is that an opportunity? Are those opportunities that have come your way because of... I mean, you know, what happened with you and what happened in that incident, it, it's very well known, isn't it? It's, you know, a lot of people... You mentioned it to most people who are involved, particularly in historic uh, motor racing in this country, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that terrible thing that happened. And you, you were right there. So have these opportunities, um, and have you found yourself stood next to former world champions and, and household racing names because of what happened, or is it because of, uh, for other reasons? Well, part of it is the fact that I went back to marshalling. Um, basically, I had two years, or took two years to rebuild my body as best I could, and then it was a case of finding avenues of 
how could I, from a wheelchair, still be involved in motorsports, uh, contribute, but in a safe manner? And I basically, 2002, late on, the post chief at Le Mans, who worked with the marshal who died alongside me, got in touch, um, said, you know, um, you know, all the details of what Andy Carpenter had actually done over at Le Mans. And the bottom line of the, the email was, if you ever want to come to Le Mans, please consider this an invitation to join us on our post. Well, I took him at his word. Mm-hmm. And therefore, 2003, I made my first trip to Le Mans after the accident, principally as a spectator observer, um, and working alongside, or watching alongside the marshals of Post 106. And that started uh, an annual visit by one year, where I'd go back to the same post. Um, I'd been upgraded so that I could actually marshal in my own right, first of all as an observer, then as an actual flag marshal. It got to the point where 2015, the ACO um, actually recognized my efforts. And as far as I'm aware, um, they recognize two marshals each year up to 24 hours. They are usually uh, French personnel. And as far as I'm aware, I'm the only British person and I'm definitely the only disabled person to have ever been awarded a trophy by the uh, president of the ACO, which was actually presented to me by Jean Top, no less. Well, no less than Jean Tot. It doesn't get more, not less than that, does it? That's right. So, uh, but what's also happened is that the pit lanes, um, because obviously I did Le Mans, I did the equivalent races when they used to come to Silverstone, and then I started doing some stuff in America. First of all, with the um, Laguna Seca races for the American Le Mans series, and then subsequently with Petit Le Mans, which is at Road Atlanta. And a lot of the same teams obviously take part in all of those events. And people like Alan McNish and uh, Dindo Capello, Tom Christensen and such like, they got to see me over and over again. And therefore, every time I went down into pit lane, it was, hi, Steve, how you doing? Where are you staying? And such like. And, uh, yeah, I suppose the familiarity uh, came from that perspective. Steve, are people who have um, mobility issues or other issues around themselves, are they able to get involved um, in marshalling and in motorsport uh, as easily as it is for somebody who is completely able-bodied? Is, is there a way for them? Is there a system in place for people to, to get involved despite, like I say, perhaps a, a lack of mobility? Right. The answer is yes but with um, restrictions. For obvious reasons, somebody in a wheelchair couldn't go out to a burning car with a fire extinguisher, pull somebody out by their epaulets, um, and all those sort of safety things. So you are restricted. You cannot go for jobs like that. And basically, it's always been a case of you should only apply for the jobs that you are physically fit enough to be able to do. So if you are sat down in a wheelchair... There are data recorders, there are announcers, there are other roles that other people who are disabled can and are doing. And 
I suppose I was probably the first prominent one, and I'm not the only one that's uh, been able to do that. There's an interface between in, in motor racing that's becoming, I think, increasingly difficult between those people who are there professionally. It's what they do. It's the only thing that they do. And the army of volunteers that's required to mm-hmm. make motorsport a possibility, it, it simply wouldn't happen without them. But as motor racing becomes increasingly specialised and complex, there is an issue with training and the amount of time that those amateurs are expected to give up to be involved Often at their expense. Let's be honest. You know, you yeah, it's might always been that way. Yeah, you might be getting a bag with a, a bag of crisps and a Snickers and a cheese and onion sandwich in it, and maybe a bit of petrol money. But it is at your expense. You could be doing something else. You could be working while you're doing that. Yeah. And the um, the amount of time and the amount of effort and the amount of training that people now require. I wonder, and I'm this is this is a a question that's often asked. Are we not in an era where it should be a job and it should be people? People who... uh, it, it's an age-old conversation, this one. We've had it amongst ourselves as marshals. What you find is um, you start getting, I'm going to say, the wrong sort of person. They're there to chase the money, not to do the motorsports. And we've always found that the more serious the person is with the motorsports, the more they're happy to be trained and all the rest of it, and the better the job they would do. I organised an event at the Oliver's Mount Circuit in Yorkshire, which was... I nearly got to do one of those a couple of years ago. Which was Britain's... It's a fantastic... It's a fantastic but very dangerous, potentially dangerous circuit because it's basically a winding public road that goes through um, a park, wooded parkland, steep, on on a steep hillside. It's It's a fascinating course to drive. It's very demanding. I remember seeing it in the 60s when it used to be on Grandstand. Yeah, very demanding, super dangerous. Um, mainly used for bikes. We took cars back there, and we realised that one of the reasons cars hadn't really spent too much time there is because it's too narrow. It's yeah. very, very difficult to pass. Um, but I love that circuit. And the event that I say I, it was me and my partner and a lot of friends who helped to make it possible. It was a great, great event. We only did it once because we had that classic that classic confrontation that bedevils so many people who think they want to organise something to do with motor racing, the council, (laughs) the local authority. It's just like, it seems to me, I mean, there are so many stories from around the country. When I I ended up with my story, which was just, I realised they just didn't want me there. They didn't want me there. They didn't want us there. We were doing something. It was almost like, why are you doing something? It didn't really matter what we were doing. It was kind of, why are you doing something? Why is the phone on my desk ringing? Why have I now got paperwork that I have to do? Well, because Actually, you... motorsport is a minority sport. Do you know what? The guys, I'll tell you, were really helpful to me. The guys that organised the Cop Hill Climb near Princess mm-hmm. Risborough, or Princess Riceborough, as I called it, because <laughs> I used to drive past that on the, the M40 or whatever, going down and think, Princess what? <laughs> like, yeah. Then you get there and you say it out loud for the first time and everybody laughs. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, why can't you come from a proper place like Wigan or Berry or Bolton that isn't difficult to pronounce anywhere? Well, I thought that was what Three Sisters was. Three Sisters, yeah. We were talking about it the other day. Somebody said to me, did you start off 
at Three Sisters, and I said, no, it's sort of nearly 60. Prince at Three Sisters hasn't been there that long. I The first time I went round Three Sisters was on a scooter. Was on a Yeah, was on a Lambretta scooter. It was very popular. The scooter racing circuit, it was... You, you think about motorsport in the UK and, and the, the stuff that gets the most publicity is obviously the stuff that happens at places like Brands Hatch and Silverstone mm-hmm. and, let's think, Alton Park, you know, places like that. There is, of course, there are stratas, aren't there? There are, And, and I've mentioned circuits to people like Lydon Hill. Like this, and they say, what on earth were you going there for? Because, of course, Lydon Hill's Dover. I mean, it's it couldn't be less... Com- well, it could be less conveniently sighted if it was on, like, a remote Scottish island, but... Dover, for goodness sake. So, you, you know, and I said, because that's where the scooter racing committee or whatever, that's where they could, A, afford, and B, were allowed to go, you know. Yeah. If they well, I go- knew it, obviously, from the karting side of things. Yeah. Because uh, I'd uh, seen the race reports of there, and then you find cars going around the same circuit. Yeah. And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. Like the first time I went to Kerbera for a car event, and I thought, Cars at Kerbera, because I, you know, carts, small motorbikes, got there and going round there in a car. I mean, it was absolutely exhausting, because it's tiny. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Kerbera. It's tiny, and there was absolutely no time to. I mean, I, Britain is full. Britain is full of unknown. Hold on, we'll have to uh, we'll have to edit that out. I'll just make a note of when that is. Right, right, 50 second, 50 minutes, right, okay. Let me just um, let me just turn that down. I knew that is as well. That's another guest. Sorry about that. Um, hey there, Steve. Yeah, I'm Right, yeah, yeah, sorry. I'll just, I'll just make a note. Uh, well, Paul, this is a bit too uh, edit. Um, Britain is full of little known, I was going to say undiscovered, but little known circuits. Like, for instance, the circuit, do you know there's a... Uh, a circuit near Royal Leamington Spa? Not at the moment, so you're giving it a name. Well, I don't I don't know if it's got a name. I'm trying to switch this phone off just a second. Let me let me switch it off. Uh, power off. There we are, shutting down. Right, good. So, right, I'll do that again. There's, there's a... Britain is full of little-known circuits, and sometimes ones that are private. I got, um, I was doing a, a job making a corporate video for some company, and they said, oh, yeah, the circuit's near Lamington Spa. You just come down. I thought, there isn't a circuit near Lamington Spa. What are you talking about? They said, yeah, yeah, and they said, so we'll do this and we'll do that. And I thought, it must be some tiny little cart track. But they say, no, 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 you'll be able to get in the straight and do this, and it's got a bank section. And I was like, a what? A bank section? <laughs> anyway. It was the former Lucas test track. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, and I said to them, what do you mean Lucas? They didn't make cars. They made headlights and horns. And they said, yeah, they used to test the headlights and the horns here. Oh, and, yeah. I said, and I said, if really? Goodwood or somewhere like that doing a 24-hour run, yeah, they would yeah. have their own circuit. 
there are all sorts of little. I remember we we I did a TV show and they said, uh, yeah, we want you to take part in this race, and the whole point of it is that you just arrive and drive, so it gets it gets away from all the sort of you know the hassle of. So the, the item started with me sort of driving a race car onto a trailer and going, oh, you know. Like, do you love racing and you've got to buy your car and you've got to do this and you've got to keep it somewhere and you need a trailer and da-da-da, da-da. Well, forget all that. There's a place and you just turn up, you pay the guy, and that's it, and you race. And they said, I said, where is it? And they said, it's near Lancaster. And again, I was like, there isn't a racetrack near Lancaster. Got there. Yes, there was. <laughs> it's a tiny little track. But it was great fun. It was, you know, and I thought, maybe that's the way forward. The problem was, when I got there, in that, in that, competition in that championship most people own their own cars and then there were three cars that were there to try and get people involved so they made it easy you could just have a go you could pay 500 quid and you could have three races so it was like fantastic but of course the cars were woefully slow like this bloke this bloke came up to me and went them school cars are terrible steve you'll get lapped by everybody and i was like oh great <laughs> Yeah, well, you put your neck on the line. Well, you? yeah, but but that's the thing, isn't it? Every kind of every, I don't know. If this is your ex, you you've seen this, but every formula or every variety or cast or or whatever we want to call it of motorsport, because it is a bit like that. It is a bit like the the Plains Indians. You've got the Blackfoot and the Sioux and the Cherokees, and not only do they not talk to each other, they're sometimes at daggers drawn because you'll say, "Oh yeah, you must know those guys," and they go, "Fool them lot." <laughs> no, we never speak to for whatever crazy reason. The but... best thing I got equivalent to that was when I was at uh, Ringwood Raceway as a steward for six or seven years. The banger races. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. So you were in teams in colour-coordinated cars, and um, it was a case of, right, we know he's um, mm. offended somebody in the last meeting. Let's make sure he doesn't get past the first corner. I found out, with my foray into the world of banger racing, uh, in a car prepared for by a man known only to me as Deadly, and so, mm. somebody rang me up and said, uh, can your man put a cage in this? And I said, yeah, yeah. So they said, give me his number. So I said, I said to him, I sent this guy the number and he said, what's his name? I said, Deadly. He said, no, no, what's his real name? I said, I don't know. He said, well, have you known him? I said, I've known him a few years. But, it's, you know, in that world, nobody says, uh, well, could I have your full name, please? You know, if somebody tells you call, they're called Deadly, that's what you call them. But exactly. I found out in that world, Steve, not only were rivalries going back one generation, there were rivalries. There were strong rivalries going back two or three generations in the stock car or banger racing world, where they go, "Oh yeah, his granddad was a right character," and you think, "Really? This this rivalry or this feud?" They, I, I must admit, there is a strong, and I like it. There is a strong redneck forward slash hillbilly aspect to that world, and by that I mean people stood round in a vest with a pit bull and a hot dog, and a cup of tea, and a polystyrene. I like it. I enjoy all that stuff. Because so much of the stuff that's, that you go to, or that, well, not that you go to, well, there is that you go to, that we both go to, like Goodwood, like events like that, it's all so swanky and so posh, and, oh, there's the Marquis of What's-A-Faces, Maserati, Birdcage, blah, blah, blah. All that's fantastic, but sometimes it's great to just turn up at a little track and there are people working out of the back of old battered Mercedes Sprinter and Transit vans and, 
And it's just no airs and graces. It's just motor racing, pure and simple, red in tooth and claw, mate, and no, none of your airs and graces. Well, basically, the pit area around Ringwood Raceway was um, sandy gravel. And basically, the cars would come on the back of um, flatbeds or high abs and basically get lowered onto the ground. Mechanics would literally be rolling in the dirt. Um, the axle grinders would be um, being applied. And, you know, on the Saturday night, um, banger racing was... Um, Unusual, should we say? Yeah, well, it gets back to what you were talking about about your mum and dad, like being big Speedway fans. Lots of people went to watch Speedway who had no interest in motorcycling. It was a gladiatorial contest that happened right Absolutely. in front of them. It was it was short races, under floodlights, loud music playing. It was entertainment, and and the, it was unabashed entertainment. You do get the feeling um, when you go to watch. The uh, you know the uh, the swanky types spinning round Goodwood or Silverstone or Brands or Alton Park or whatever in their priceless nineteen sixties or nineteen fifties or whatever that as a paying customer not that I have to I'm a paying customer because I must admit I'm the king of the freeloaders when it comes to stuff like that because <laughs> I can't be bothered paying for it but if somebody's got a ticket that I might go along just just for a laugh um, you do get the reason you do get the feeling that. It's organised for their benefit, not for yours. As 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 the paying public, you're very much sort of, you know, you're very much like, go and stand over there and try not to make too much noise and we'll just enjoy ourselves in our fabulous cars. Whereas when you go when you go to Speedway or to stock car racing, as a paying punter who, you know, who pays you money at the turnstile, you're treated like a king. You put inside out of the rain, you can have a beer, you can have a burger, they'll bring it to your seat. You sit there, the whole thing happens right in front of you. And of course, when I got to the States, and don't know if this is your experience, it was exactly the same. I got to the States and I thought, ah, there's none of that, there's none of that sort of, you know, just stand there and be quiet and be grateful that you're here, that there is in the UK. In America, the customer is king. And if you pay your money at Daytona Raceway, the whole thing happens in front of you and 200,000 other people, and you can have a beer, and you can have a hot dog, and, you you know, the, your seat's probably heated even though you're in Florida and you're undercover or whatever. The customer well, really is king over there. Not here, but, you know, it's Britain, which is different, always has been. I think part of that, though, is the so-called professionalisation of upper-class motorsports. and yeah could say Bernie Ecclestone was partly responsible for some of that because of the fact that he took away the minnows and the, the um, once a time, one Grand Prix a year sort of people, took them aside and packaged it all out saying, right, okay, we want everybody to look smart, all the cars in each team must look the same and mm. all the mm. rest of it. And then when they had the cars and the teams presented that way, they then went to the um, tracks and said, right, you're going to now pay more mo money and therefore the tracks themselves to make the money back to pay for that would have to smarten their act up. I think the whole thing is an evolution yeah. caused by all sorts of factors beyond just the racing. Absolutely. Bang on, Steve, because it's been a combination of, it's been a combination of things and th there are people who do yearn for those days when it was so much simpler and you could get in your chain gang Fraser Nash or your Austin Healy, whatever it was, you know, and and just drive over to Brands and 
sort of, oh, is there an entry? You know, I think there's I think there's a couple of entries like, oh, could you put Nigel down, please? You know, like that sort of thing. They, they yearn for those days. But it, it couldn't go on like that. It's become a massive industry. Something like Goodwood Revival, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and the TT, mm. um, a pal of mine said, do you realise the value of the grid? You don't want to. <laughs> And I said, what is it? And he, he, he's, and the figure that he came up with, and I said, where's that figure come from? It was hundreds of millions of pounds. That the, yeah, that the low drag E-types and Lister Jaguars and genuine Cobras with immense racing history and, of course, the Ferrari GTOs that turn up and, and, and do that race. It was hundreds of millions of pounds. But it's not that long ago that most of those cars would have been doing the occasional procession round the circuit before a race and then being shoved back behind a velvet rope in a museum somewhere and, and seen by very few people. It's like yeah. they've, those cars have been dragged out of the shadows and, and put in front of an enormous public, not just online, but also live. I mean... The amounts of money, again, that people always talk about the money, and it's interesting. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not interested in that, but it's not the most interesting part of it. But the amount of money that something like the Goodwood machine, which you've seen close up, and I'm not having a go at Goodwood at all. I think it's a remarkable British success story, and in many respects, the motorist's equivalent of Glastonbury, in that it is the world's preeminent motoring festival, by far. I've been, to, I've been to Pebble Beach, Monterey Historic Week. I've been to Techno Classica. I've been to Retromobile in Paris. I've been all over the world to these sorts of things. And they're great, but they, they're not a patch on Goodwood. Goodwood, Goodwood, absolutely. So Goodwood, uh, puts I them all in the, the shadow. assembly gate for 10 years. Yeah. And the cars and the people that rolled past me, if I hadn't been there, I would probably have never seen them yeah. in my life. That's it for another episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Social media doesn't let us tell you about it. You need to spread the word about Speed Shop. Tell people how good it is, how entertaining it is, and how fantastic I am. See you back here next Wednesday.